Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. And we're going to look, Lord willing, at the next four verses, 5, 6, 7, and 8 as we go on. This portion here in chapter 2 that we're looking at, starting in verse 5, the writer continues to make clear the contrast here between the Son of God and angels. And the book of Hebrews, I think it's been mentioned before, I'm certain it has been mentioned, is a book of contrast, how Jesus is better, really so much better. And he starts out with being so much better than angels. The writer presents that. Angels were valued or highly thought of in, in the nation of Israel. They were, they were looked at as the uh, mediatorial uh, means by which God brought the law to the Jewish people through angels given to Moses, given to the nation of Israel. And they would have been well aware of the visitation that different people in the nation of Israel had uh, of angels, even at the time of the birth of Jesus, right? You know, there was an angel that announces his birth. So Jesus is better than angels. And so there's this contrast. And that's the heart of chapter 1. And the reason he's so much better than angels is that he is deity. He is God. And after the first three verses of chapter 1, where the Son is introduced as the Messiah, one who would occupy the office of prophet, priest, and king. It gives numbers of prophecies showing that from, from the Jewish scripture, from the Old Testament, showing that Jesus is, or actually the Son, who we know is Jesus, but the Son is God. And that's why the Son is so much better than the angels when he gets down to it. So there are three thoughts about the Son that are not true of angels brought out in this portion that we're looking at. First, the Son will rule the world to come, verses 5, 7, and 8. Second, the Son, who is God, is also man, and it is man who God has ordained, not angels, who will rule as the God-man he will rule. And third, the Son has been crowned with glory and honor, which is not true with any of the angels. So when we start out in verse 5, for unto the angels have he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. Now angels are ministering spirits, they're not rulers. But 
the first four verses of this chapter are parenthetical. And it was the first warning passage of five warning passages in Hebrews, chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 12. So it was a parenthetical thought to those professing, not truly saved. They gave lip service that Jesus is the Messiah, professing believers in Jesus, warning that if they go back to Mosaism, the uh, law of Moses and the practice of the temple and, and turn from Jesus and go back, um, don't do it. Don't do it. And so there's a warning in the first four verses. And so if, you, if we would read, and we will, the, just the last couple of verses of chapter 1 and pick it up in verse 5, you'll see the, th you'll see the flow. And I put these last couple of verses down here for us in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. So I'm going to read those and then go back to verse 5 of chapter 2 and you'll see the flow. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they, angels, not all ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. And if you, if you read like that, and... and and then we go into verse 6 eventually, but you can see the continual flow that picks up uh, from the end of chapter 1. And again, because the first four verses of chapter 2 are parenthetical. Uh, and he's, he's left the thought of Jesus being better, or the Son being better than angels to address the warning to those who might fall away. He picks up that thought again in verse 5. For unto the angels have they not put in subjection the world to come. Welcome. No, that's all right. Yeah, you certainly do. That's why. No, I'm no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but that no, no problem whatsoever. We've had people come in much later. We're in Hebrews chapter two, and um, just to summarize really quickly. The first four verses are parenthetical. And what I just did, and I can do it again, I read the last two verses of chapter 1. And what that does is, if you then read on to verse 5, you'll see the flow. And it's presenting Jesus as better than the angels because he's God, they are not God. Uh, he will be ruler, they are not ruler. But in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 1, which are down here in this section under verse 5, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemy thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? For unto the angels said he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. And so sitting on the right hand of God is a, is a place of authority, place of power, place of rulership. And so when that is said in verse 13, to which of the angels has he said that? Well, obviously to which angels he said that? None. But he did say that to the Son, the Messiah, Jesus. So it's, it's a prophecy from uh, Psalm 2. 
uh, speaking of the Messiah. And so the angels will not be in a place of authority. They're the, and the purpose of angels, the, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits? The whole purpose of angels is to serve, to minister. Um, they ministered to Israel at times. They ministered to believers. <coughs> Excuse me. They are ministering spirits sent forth. This is verse 14 again. To minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. Now, who are the heirs of salvation? We mentioned this when we looked at it a few weeks ago. Believers. Then in verse 5, for unto the angels have he not put in subjection. Now, if something is in subjection to you, what's happening? You're ruling over it. You're, you're in control of it. You're sovereign over it. It's, it's, it's to be in submission to you. And, and so God had not put uh, the world to come into submission, into uh, subjection to angels, whereof we speak. Who has he done that? The Son. And the Son will have that. So verse 5 puts up, picks up where chapter 1 left off. Angels are not ruling spirits. So one of the things we certainly should never do is exalt angels. But the want of mankind, it's very common, especially in our society today, uh, angels are exalted. S certainly they're powerful beings. Demons, fallen angels, are very powerful beings. But angels, good angels, should not be exalted. They're just servants. You know, if, you know, if, if you were living in um, whenever in history and you had servants, did you exalt your servants? No. No, the servants are not to be exalted. They were servants. Well, that's what angels are. Um, but Satan would rather have you watch Touched by an Angel or what are some of these other shows about angels? I don't know. Um, Highway to Heaven and, and different things um, to try to get you focused on angels instead of the one that we should be focused on, which is the Son, Jesus Lord. They're ministering servants. Um, and, the, and the world to come is not put into subjection to them. Now, as we get into verse 6, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Now, what we're going to have here in verse 6 goes down uh, through the beginning of verse 8, 8a. We have a quote from Psalms, from Psalm chapter 8, 4, 5, and 6. And <clears throat> I have put 4, 5, and 6 here, so we don't have to turn there. Um, here's the quote from Psalm chapter 8. What is man, it reads the same way, uh, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Now, that's how this passage in Hebrews is going to read as we go down. Not completely. It only goes through 8a. 
and it's spoken of of Jesus. Now, later on at the end of this study, I mentioned, I'll bring it up at this point. Originally written, Psalm 8 was not messianic. And you will not find, uh, I don't think in, in any Jewish writing, I could be wrong on this, but you will probably not find in any Jewish writing attributing Psalm 8 as a messianic passage. Uh, but the way it is used here, it is obviously intended to be messianic because it's applied to Jesus. But it's very, very instructive in many ways. Uh, it starts out, and we'll look at verse 6 of Hebrews, one in a certain place testified, um, and it's just talking about the writer of Psalms. It's not a mysterious type of individual that testified. But what is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him. Now, what's important to read is the first, or the previous verse at least, in Psalm 8 that sets the stage for verses 4 through 6. And uh, the context of the quote here mirrors or, or mimics or um, you could probably come up with another uh, term, the phrase, so great salvation of verse 3. Remember in, in verse 3, and I have my Bible open, uh, which is the warning passage, part of the warning passage in, ver in, cha in chapter 2. Uh, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? You know, and, we, and I, I had put down six different things uh, to speak of why salvation is so great. And I think the following week, last week, I somebody... Where we were talking, I should have put down a seventh point. But you probably put down an eighth point, a ninth point, a tenth point, and so on. Uh, so great salvation. You know, it's free, it's eternal. Uh, I, you know, it's, um, I forget all the, all the reasons that I give. Uh, but the, the concept here, the thought here that we have mirrors the, the phrase, so great salvation. And, and when we think how great salvation is, it's just, Sometimes I think we should just get alone and just think about what God has done for us in Jesus. You know, the, the how great our salvation is. And, um, and again, I may have said this a few weeks ago, but um, I was saved at the age of 27. You know, I know I said it now because I remember Charlotte was saved a lot older than I was. You know, I was just a kid when I was saved. But... Um, because Charlotte's been saved four years, right? Five, four years, four years. Uh, and she's 37, so she was saved. At, no, she's not 37. But anyway, she's north of 37. But anyway, Cheryl was saved as a, as a real kid, you know, five, four, five, six. You know, she was, you know, so 20s. But all, I, I can still remember the awe, the, the, um, yeah, words escape me. Just how how amazing it was for me that I was saved, that I was a child of God. Which my guess is, when you're saved at the age of five, it maybe never hits you like it hit somebody who gets saved at the age of twenty-seven or fifty-seven. You know, someone who has lived in the world and 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 tasted of the 
of, of the sinfulness of the world. Uh, and, and I was just, so, uh, just blown away, just totally blown away um, about being safe, uh, being a child of God. And sometimes I would just sit and just uh, meditate on that. You know, and, and, and I would say, and, and, and I, 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 I used to read a whole bunch, and a lot of stuff that I read I shouldn't have read, and, and, and yes, I got Playboy for the articles, I didn't get it for the pictures, but anyway, this was before I was saved, um, so, <laughs> you've heard that story before, <laughs> so, um, Shouldn't have gone down that road, I guess. But anyway, um, I, I read a lot of garbage, uh, you know. I know. Um, you, you heard, you've heard that saying before. I don't get Playboy. I don't even know if it's published anymore. I don't get Playboy for the pictures. I get it for the articles. Uh, yeah, right. Um, anyway, I used to read all kinds of stuff. Some good, some bad. So I'm indifferent, but when I got saved, and, I, and, and, and it just, this is the word of God, that, that, that just blew me away, that, that just was amazing, you know, this is the word of God, you know, and, and where God speaks to me, and I don't know, if you were saved at a later age in life, maybe it struck you the same way it struck me, but I, I just don't think it strikes young people who get saved, at a, and that's the best way. You know, a lot of people want to hear my testimony through the years because I've got one of those testimonies that is, you know, drugs and attempted suicide and cults and uh, all this garbage, but it's exciting. I don't want to hear Cheryl's testimony. <laughs> she, she was raised in a fifth-generation Christian, born-again Christian family, um, got saved at the, <coughs> at the age of five, um, you know, and just, you know, and, and went to church all of her life. And yeah, nobody wants to hear that testimony, right? That's the best testimony. I don't have the best testimony. I may have an exciting testimony. It's not the best testimony. Um, and so, but, but I think there's also that concern that comes with it, um, that it just, it's, eh. You know, I've been saved from the age of five, and, you know, we've always believed this. And, but, but when I got saved, it was just, wow, so great a salvation. This is the Word of God. What a, wow, just amazing, and, and that blew me away. Well, that's what, that's what Hebrews is saying. Don't let it pass you by. It's so great a salvation. That's what verse 6 is building on to. When it, when it talks about, what is my man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visit him? <clears throat> and you understand this when you understand what would be verse 3 in, in Psalm 8. In, in Hebrews 2, it's verse 6. In Psalm 8, it's verse 4. So when we read Psalm 3, here's what it says. <clears throat> when I consider the heavens, the work of of thy fingers, speaking of God, the moon and the stars which thou has ordained. Then go back to, to, to verse 4, we, as, right here as it would be in Psalm 8. What is man? 
You know, when you consider the heavens, how huge are the heavens? Immense. Immense. When you consider that they're the work of his fingers, you know, that, that seems, whoop, whoop, there goes the heavens. You know, he spoke. He didn't, you know, he wasn't finger painting. Um, but it's the same type of thought. You know, consider the work of his, uh, of his fingers and the moon and the stars, which God has ordained and put into place. And, and, and we know when the sun's going to rise. We know when it's going to set. We, we can, you know, farmer's almanac can plan ahead for a whole year, if not longer. I don't know, because God has ordained these things, and we can set our watches by it and, and that type of, of thing. And um, you consider that, um, how great God is. He's mirroring so, so great salvation. When you, and <clears throat> I think it's, it can be a challenge to us too. When is the last time you've just sat down and considered the universe? The, the, immensity, the immensity of it. Um, and that God brought it all into existence. I don't understand um, what, what's you Ross's type of people? What's the word I'm looking for? Um, they're not creationists, but they claim to be creationists. Um, what's the theistic evolutionists? Thank you. Yes, I don't understand people who Christians who want to be theistic evolutionists. They want to be more science oriented than they do Bible oriented, um, because you're taking away the greatness of God. You're taking away what He did. And, 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 you know, it, it's just, to me, it's demeaning God. remember a number of years ago, um, Danny Faulkner. <coughs> um, I knew Danny from California. Danny was a professor at Virginia, not Virginia Tech. He was a professor at South Carolina, one of the off schools, not the main campus. And uh, today he's serving full-time with uh, Answers in Genesis, but back then he worked uh, with um, uh, Institute, of, Institute of Creation Research. And when we were in El Cajon, we went to the uh, church that all the El Cajon, all the Institute of Creation Research scientists usually went, especially when they were visiting in the area. So Cheryl and I got to know Danny through uh, that little church <coughs> at times. And when we came here, he had me come down to the little church just south of Charlotte to preach. And uh, so when, I, don't, I think maybe when I was down there preaching, Danny had just debated um, Ross on, on, I don't even remember the topic. You know, obviously it was, it was six-day six creation versus a theistic evolution creation. Now, you know what six-day creation is, right? In six 24-hour days, God created everything. Theistic evolution that you, Ross, and others of his ilk believe in is that God started everything with that primordial mud and that little thing in there, and it evolved over three billion years or whatever time period it took. And here you are. You know, you're not an ape, you're, you're closely related. You know, that's theistic evolution. So it's evolution and then just giving God the credit, I guess you, you call it credit, for getting everything started and then sitting back and letting everything happen. 
Well, anyway, Danny gave me this. He just gotten the. Um, hadn't it wasn't even available for sale. It was it was a video of a um, debate that he had with you, Ross. He said, "Would you like to look at it? Let me know what you think." I said, "Sure." <clears throat> so I took it home, and he said, "I need it back. It's the only one I have, and I don't know if it was ever." Um, duplicated, made available for anybody else. But uh, so I, I took it home and, and I, I watched it and I said, I can sum this whole thing up in basically one or two sentences. You know, not much longer than that. You look at everything from the Bible to the world or to science. You, Ross, looks at science and reads it back into the Bible. That's it. And, and Danny said, you nailed it. I'm glad you saw it, because that's the whole bottom line. And the whole, it was an, I don't know, two-hour debate, whatever it was, you can sum it up into that basic thing. Danny takes a very high view of the Bible. It's the Word of God. It's authoritative. And uh, science, uh, when it lines up with the Bible, is correct. When it doesn't line up with the Bible, it's not correct. You, Ross elevate science as supreme and bring science into the Bible. It gives lip service to the Bible being the Word of God and but reads science into it, and that's why you have theistic evolution. You, Ross, is brilliant, but he is brilliantly wrong on this. Um, he is just plain wrong. The Bible's the Word of God. And, and when you read something like verse 3, when I consider thy heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, God brought all this into existence. It, it didn't happen just boom, even if God did the boom, uh, that type of thing. Uh, so sometimes just meditate on it. When you, and then consider what he's going to say next, which we're going to get into. How immense the universe is, how powerful God is to bring this to pass. And then, verse 4. What is man? Which is verse 6 in, in Hebrews chapter 2. What is man? That thou art mindful of him. And the son of man that thou visitest him. When you consider how huge the universe is, the moon and the stars, and God ordained all that, and he spoke in, you know, you know, the finger of God brought it into existence. That's just a phrase. How insignificant are we? When you, when you consider, you know, sometimes you listen to evolutionists, and, and they talk about, they know how big the universe is, how huge the universe is, and they said, we're just nothing. You know, certainly there's got to be other planets out there with other populations, whether they're humans or not, whatever, you know, and, and we're just nothing, they'll say, um, when you consider how huge the universe is, that type of thing. Well, that's the thought that God's giving, but he's given it in this sense, how, how huge the universe is and what God has done and God is mindful of us, that God would visit us. And, and, and 
what it's saying is how amazing it is that God would be concerned about us. And he is. That's what it's saying. Now, in Hebrews, this is applied to Jesus. Back in Psalms, it's just talking initially about mankind. Uh, but here it's used messianically in speaking about Jesus. But he's saying, when you consider the immensity of the universe and what God has done and what he has ordained, that God is mindful of man and visit him. He doesn't do this with angels. When angels rebelled against, you know, when God created the angels initially, uh, and one-third of them rebelled against God and went with Satan, their fate was sealed. They were, they, were, they, were, they were sealed. They don't have a second chance, as it were. When Adam and Eve sinned, God set in motion the plan to give man the opportunity to be redeemed. He didn't do that for angels. Sinful angels, rebellious angels, are locked into their ultimate destiny. When man sinned, God set in motion a plan to redeem us back to himself. And so it's just the thought of, of this, this, this amazingly powerful God who would consider our need and visit us and that type of thing. Then in verse, um, <clears throat> verse 7, we'll move, um, move down into the Hebrew passage. Um, it says the same thing in, in, in verse 5 of Psalm 8. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of your hands. Now, it's talking about Jesus here. It's quoting from uh, the psalm, and initially... Man was going to be crowned with glory and honor, but they rebelled and that type of thing. And so it's now applied messianically as we get to Jesus in this portion of Hebrews as the son of man or the son at this point and what he would do. And it says, thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Now, if, if you look back in chapter one, because some people have stumbled over this. Um, <clears throat> in verse four. And I don't know if I put verse 4 down here. Um, I don't think so. In Hebrews 1.4, being made so much better than the angels. <clears throat> here, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 7, God's made him a little lower than the angels. And a lot of people have wrestled with this, stumbled over this. Well, if he's made better than the angels... How then can he be also made a little lower than the angels? Um, ultimately, uh, the end, of, the middle and the end of verse 7, uh, thou crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of thy hands. So all of creation, all of what God made, and is there anything in this world essentially that God didn't make? No, you are here because God created Adam and Eve, right? If he didn't create Adam and Eve, would you be here? No. He created everything. And so ultimately, God has put the sun over everything. But prior to that, we are told 
thou madest him a little lower than the angels. And what this is talking about is for a very small amount of time that would take place, and specifically his death and resurrection, ultimately. In his incarnation, he was made little lower for a brief time than the angels. And it's more than just his incarnation. It would be um, specifically around his death. And we'll get to that in a second. But first, I want, I want us to consider something. Um, angels in the, in the psalm, in the Hebrew, uh, verse 5. For thou hast made him a little, uh, and going back, not verse 5 in Hebrews, but verse 5 in Psalm chapter 8, which is right above for you. Uh, For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Angels is actually the word Elohim. Now Elohim is normally translated how in the Old Testament, Jewish Bible? God. Whenever it's speak, I am is is the plural ending. Uh, so whenever it's uh, Elohim, it, it's, if it's speaking of false gods, which is, it's a plural word, Elohim, it, you always translate it gods, G-O-D-S, with a small g. Uh, for example, Exodus chapter 20, where it says, God says, thou shalt have no other Elo- Elo- Elohim before me, gods. It's a plural word. But when it's, that, when it's speaking of the one true God, it's always translated in the singular, even though it's a plural word. Like in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, Elohim, but it's translated God, Elohim, Bereshit, Barah, Elohim, created. Because it's speaking of the one true God. Here, <coughs> it's translated Elohim as angels. Now, some, some versions have it as God or gods here. You want to say something, Bob? Yeah, and I don't want to go down that road right now. That's too, road of, too far a road to travel at this point. But yes, um, uh, you do want to get home for bed at, by midnight, right? Okay, okay. So I won't go down that road right now. Okay. But yes, yes. Um, because actually, Barah, there you go, Bob, you got me started. <coughs> Elohim is a plural word, Barah is singular. Now, normally in languages, the, uh, the subject and the verb are supposed to what? Agree. Uh, <coughs> they are going to school. Are is plural, they are plural. You would not say correctly anyway, he are going to school. And you wouldn't say they is going to school. You know, the, the subject and the Well, in Genesis 1 1, it doesn't agree. You got the singular verb, Barah, you got the plural, Elohim. And we could go down that road even further. But yes, it, it speaks of a plurality and unity, is what it does. But uh, <coughs> um, Bob's going to stay here until midnight. Donna's going home. And uh, so he can learn all about this. But anyway, um, where was I? So it's translated Elohim here as. Angels. Now, this has caused a consternation for some people. And maybe you, does anybody have a version here, or do you want to even admit to it, that tra- not here in, in Hebrews, but in Psalms, you'd have to turn back there. 
in Psalms chapter 8 that translates that he has made him a little lower than, than God. Now, and, and when, you, when you get down to it, in his incarnation, in a sense, he was, you know, Jesus humbled himself, Philippians 2, was a little lower than God. But, but angels is the best understanding. So anybody looking back with the, I have the King James Version, that's what the notes are in. Any of your translations say um, he made him a little lower than God? Eight, it would be eight, um, five. Psalm 8, 5. Yeah, see, there's, there's a translation that translates Elohim as God. And that's normally how it's done. Now, in the first century, <clears throat> they were using the Septuagint version, and the Septuagint version, which uh, they put the Hebrew into the Greek language some, oh, a uh, couple hundred years or so before the time of Christ, that was the common uh, version of the scriptures used, and that they used angels there. The so-called uh, 70 rabbis, maybe 72, who, made it, who, who translated the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek, the Septuagint, they did use the Greek word for angels. And so that would have been the, 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 the Bible that was used, and that's what they oftentimes quoted out of. And so they were certainly quoting out of the Septuagint, where it does say angels. So is angels correct, or should it be God? Well, <clears throat> this came from the website. And it's as good as anything I found on it that explains it. And in this uh, person's estimation, uh, this is what he said. Is this justified? In other words, is it justified to translate here Elohim as angels? That depends on the semantic range of the word Elohim. In other words, is Elohim only mean God or God's? Or is there a broader understanding for this word Elohim in the language of the day? In English, the word God tends to be used in a very narrow manner. It is most often used in specific reference to the God of the Bible. And I just copied and pasted this, so this is his... He put lowercase gd, not me, but anyway... Uh, God of the Bible, often simply called God, i.e. Yahweh, the God of Israel. The word is also often used to refer to a singular, all-knowing, benevolent entity in a more general sense, with the God of the Bible being implied at best. Either way, for most English speakers, so he's not talking about Bible-believing English speakers, he's talking about English speakers and how they look at the term or the word God. For most English speakers, the word God carries the inerrant meaning that there is only one such being. In Hebrew, the Elohim word family, the word family, not the word, the family group of Elohim is what it's saying, okay? Um, Elohim, Eloah, El, Elah, those are all different derivatives of, of the word, has a much wider semantic range. Beyond the, beyond the obvious use of these words for Yahweh, Jehovah, these words can be used for pagan gods, 
Exodus chapter 20, which I mentioned, remember? Ten Commandments, thou shalt have no other Elohim, false gods, pagan gods before me. So they can be used for pagan gods, for angels, and even human rulers or leaders. For example, Psalm 82, 6. At least is understood by the author of John 10, 34 through 35. I, I, I found this good. I don't know if this guy's a believer or not. He doesn't give any information on himself. So Then he goes on. <clears throat> and the existence of texts like uh, the, the LXX, the 70, that's because supposedly 70 rabbis, that's an abbreviation for the Septuagint. So if in this context, if you see LXX, it's talking about the Septuagint. And again, the Septuagint were supposedly 70 rabbis who interpreted the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, into Greek some couple of hundred years prior to the time of Jesus. That's the Septuagint. Okay? We have a copy of it in the library if you'd want to look at it. Um, so the existence of texts like the Septuagint, Psalm 8.6, which uses angels. <clears throat> or 11Q13, cited above, and I didn't put that citation there. Now, what is 11Q13? 11Q13 is referring back to some of the um, Qumran scrolls. And the particular scroll, um, and, and I'm not sure how they... they, they you know, I think it's the um, <coughs> Qumran, it may be the 11th scroll, I don't know, in the Qumran Cave 13, I forget how they do it with the Qumran. But anyway, he's referring, referencing a certain, a particular scroll that was found in the Qumran, in Qumran, remember that little shepherd boy and throwing the rocks back in 1947 because he had lost his goat and he's trying to, you know, shake out his goat so he can bring him home to dad and not get a whipping or whatever he would have gotten. And he throws a rock into this cave and he hears the shattering of a, of a piece of pottery. And this is down in the Dead Sea. And those of you who have been to Israel, we go to Qumran and we, we stand and there's a big gorge and then we see that cave over there, if you know what I'm talking about. And uh, so anyway, he got curious. He went and he found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And he took those scrolls back, and uh, the whole, the, that's, that's the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they found a whole bunch of scrolls. Well, there was one scrolls uh, which used Elohim, translated Elohim, um, as angels. And our, he says, they are ample demonstration that Elohim was sometimes understood by ancient Jews and Christians to refer to angels or humans, depending on the context. So yes, he concludes, the choice of translating Elohim as angels in Psalm 8.5 is justified. Angels was included in the semantic range of meaning for Elohim. You following? Now, the, the primary translation of Elohim is God. But in the, in the range of meaning for Elohim, it could be angels. And it was in Psalm 8.5. And that's how it is in Hebrews 2. And it's intended to be. 
And I think you can, if, if for no other reason, you can see it in um, Hebrews chapter 2, which gives, cre is, is Hebrews 2 um, inspired? Yeah. Well, here's a commentary on Psalm 8. And what is the contrast in, in Hebrews chapter 1 and then 5 down through 8, which we, we're getting into 8? Jesus is so much better than angels. And so when God has angels here as well, you, you, you don't have to argue about the King James or another translation that makes Elohim God, whichever it might be. When, when God uses angels in Hebrews chapter 2, if you believe in the inspiration of Scripture, Old and New Testament, that seals the deal. That settles it. It's angels. But beyond that, semantically, in the range of semantics, it was used for angels. So it's, 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 is it justifiable to translate Elohim as angels? Unquestionably. Unquestionably. It's justifiably with semantics and the, the, the meaning range of the word, but it's also justifiable because God did. Now, who, are we, who am I to argue with God? So, I'm not liberal enough to argue with God. Um, I'll leave that up to the liberals. They can argue with God. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> oh, I wouldn't want to be in their shoes at the great white throne judgment. But anyway, uh, you know, they might think they win the argument this side of death. Uh, but the other side of death, it's a whole different ballgame. Uh, so, anyway. Um, so it should be. <clears throat> Thou has made him a little lower than the angels. Now, turn, turn the page over. So, first we need to establish some things. Jesus is God. Now, that has been established in, ch in chapter 1. You know, so how is, how is Jesus lower than the angels if he's God? That, and angels are ministering spirits. So, Obviously, you know, but, but it's something more than, than what's on the face here, obviously. Jesus is God. Uh, I just put down a couple of passages here. Um, one of them being the first chapter of John in verses 1 and 14. Uh, the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word was made flesh. So the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh. You could literally put it, and God was made flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The, the God who was made flesh is the Son, Jesus. <clears throat> First Timothy 3.16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in the glory. What a, I mean, you could stay on this passage right here for five weeks. You know, you could talk about God being manifest in the flesh, how he was justified in the spirit, how he was seen of angels, how he preached to the Gentiles, how he's believed on in the world, and received, what is that, six messages? You know, if you wanted to. But anyway, um, we're not going to do that. God was manifest in the flesh. So, and that's what Hebrew 1 argues. The Son is God. Jesus is God. You, want, you have another point you want to make, Bob? He keeps on raising his finger back there. I'm not sure if that's the result of his hospitalization. 
No, it wasn't the flesh. No, it wasn't the flesh. It was his death. It was his death. Now, he had to take on flesh to die. So, so there had to be the incarnation. <coughs> so, yeah. So, anyway. Jesus being a little low, lower than the angels was temporary. Now, I read this earlier. We went back and read it earlier. Hebrews 1.4. He was made so much better than the angels as he had by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Uh, this has to do with his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. You don't have to turn over here. I put it down, and we will start off, Lord willing, next week with this verse. But it's right below here. But we see Jesus. Now, I've commented on this before, probably worth commenting on, on it again. All the way up until verse 8 of chapter 2, we never have the name of Jesus. You're introduced to the Son, who is the prophet, priest, and king. First three verses of Hebrews. Messiah, the offices. Who is very God, much better, much greater than the angels. And after prophecy, after prophecy, after prophecy, when we come, and Psalm 8 is a prophecy of the Messiah. You may not pick it up originally without Hebrews, but it certainly is. When you come down to verse 9, but we see Jesus. And I've oftentimes said this is a great primer, instruction manual, if you will, for Jewish evangelism. Because down through verse 8, they never, ever, the writer never mentions the name of Jesus. He just gives prophecy after prophecy. He says, I'm introducing you to the, if I can paraphrase the first three, uh, first four verses, really, of, of uh, chapter one. Here's the Messiah. And then he gives this prophecy and this prophecy and this prophecy and this prophecy. And then the, 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 the listeners or the readers, as the case might be, whatever. But we see Jesus. You know, it's kind of like, Today, probably the best way of doing that with the Jewish, just give them Isaiah 53. And they read Isaiah 53, and almost all the time their response is, well, that's the new, something like, well, that's the New Testament that's speaking of Jesus. But I see Jesus there. Well, that's what is being done here, after prophecy, after prophecy, after prophecy. But then he goes on. It tells us, who was made a little, little lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death. Now, yes, he had to. Yes, he had to be born. He had to be take on flesh, certainly. But the little lower the angels is uniquely tied in with his death. He was made flesh. He was made a little lower than the angels that he would suffer. He would have the suffering of death. Now he would be crowned with glory and honor. But the end of verse. Uh, nine, <clears throat> that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. That's the uniqueness of being made lower than the angels, that he had to die. He took on flesh. See, why did, you, why did God have to become man? It goes all the way back to the garden, right? All the way, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. We won't leave the ladies out of this. It goes back to our first parents, when they rebelled against God and they sinned. And God put in motion a plan from that point <clears throat> that ultimately the, the only one that could provide uh, a satisfying 
payment of sins for a holy God would be someone who is perfect. And when Adam and Eve sinned, has there ever been, outside of the Lord, outside of Jesus, has there ever been a perfect man since that time? No. For all have sinned. Come short. There's so many verses on that. On that. And so, if, if Adam and Eve never would, would have sinned, Jesus wouldn't have had to take on, the Son wouldn't have had to take on flesh to die, because that's, that's the whole, he didn't take on flesh to show us how to live. Although if you can live like Jesus, you have really arrived. I mean, there's no better life to pattern your life after. No, the, there's one, he was born, you've heard, you know, he was born to die. And he was made a little lower than the angels. In the broad sense, you might consider from his incarnation on when he took on flesh, but in the, in, in the focus point is because he had to die. Had to physically die, so he had to be God's atonement for people. Um, so he would suffer death for the world. So he ultimately then became the sacrifice for the sins of the world when he was lower, made lower than the angel. See, an angel couldn't do it. Michael couldn't pay the penalty. Gabriel couldn't pay the penalty. No other man or woman can pay the penalty because we are fallen, sinful. We are, yes, created in the image of God, but we, are we have now a marred image of God. You go back and you read. You know, actually, who was initially created in the image of God? Adam. And then, and then you go back and you read about the next one that would come on the scene um, in, um, no, let me, not the next one. <clears throat> in chapter 5, this is in verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Adam was created in the likeness of God. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in that day when they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called him Seth. See, no longer was Adam's children created after the likeness of God. Maybe a marred likeness, but not, you know, when Adam, God's, God's perfect. Do you think God is going to create a marred, imperfect, sinful image of himself? No. Adam was perfect until he sinned. And after that point, everybody is now created in the image of Adam. Now, we're, we're, we're one step down, as it were, from the image of God. But it's a huge step. <laughs> so, it's a huge step. I mean, if you try to step down that step, you're going to take a big tumble and a big fall. Uh, because we're going from perfection, and Adam was perfect till he sinned, to imperfection, sinfulness. And, and, and you, know, you know what caused... Uh, I forget the name of the school yesterday. That, that high school, that school in Parkland was the city. Whatever they, you know what caused that shooting? 
It's not lack of gun laws. It's not uh, sin. Sin. That's what causes it. Sin. That's it. Sin. You know, there's a lot of things that may have contributed to this guy leading up to that point, but the bottom line, sin. Sin. So we, mankind, are now created in the image of Adam and Eve, if you will. Marred, imperfect, sinful, in need of redemption. So Jesus would become the sacrifice for the sins of the world when he was made a little lower than the angels. It was temporary because he would not ultimately lay or reside in that grave. Now, I want to consider 2 Corinthians 5.21, which speaks to this issue. For he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's a great, uh, is it a hymn or a chorus or whatever? It is? Who sings here? What would you call it, a hymn that uses this? Verse, God, you know, I, I, you know, I can't even remember the words, let alone sing it. But, it's, I, but see, Jesus, God did not make Jesus to be sin for us. That's, a, that's not the best translation there. Jesus was never made sin. He was the perfect son of God. He was the sinless, spotless lamb. He knew no sin, yes, but he was not made sin. The Old Testament type was a pure and holy offering to God. Now, we're not going to look at all these verses. Um, but an animal had to be chosen that was without spot or blemish. Leviticus 4 and chapter 5, chapter 9, Deuteronomy 15. So that animal had to be a picture of what Jesus would be ultimately, which was a pure a spotless sacrifice to God. An animal that was a sin offering never became an unholy sacrifice. Never became an unholy sacrifice. Look at, look at Leviticus 6. We can look at some of these, um, or I can read it to you. Um, in 25 through 29... If I can get there... Speak unto Aaron to his son, saying, This is the law of the sin offering in the place where the burnt offering is killed. Shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord? It is most holy. The priests that offer it for the sin shall eat it. In the holy place shall it be eaten. In the court of the tabernacle of the congregation, whosoever shall touch the flesh thereof shall be holy. And when there is sprinkled of the blood thereof upon any garment, thou shalt wash that whereon it was sprinkled in the holy place. But the earthen vessel wherein it is sodden shall be broken. If it be sodden in a brazen pot, it shall both be scoured and rinsed in water. All the males among the priests shall eat thereof. It is most holy. This is the sacrifice. This is the um, sin offering. This is the law of the sin. And the sin offering was most holy. And if you touched it, or any, you would be holy. So how can Jesus, as the sacrifice, become unholy by becoming sin? He couldn't be. He couldn't be. Jesus was a perfect, holy offering. But later on in Hebrews, when, it, when we get down here to chapter 9, in, in verse 14, uh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, 
who through eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So Jesus offered himself without spot to God. How could he have be sin if he was without spot? 1 Peter 1.19, you know that, the just what? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 no, that, I'm thinking of another one. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish, without spot. He's totally perfect. Jesus had no blemish. He had no spot. He had no sin. See, what it should be, he became our sin offering, not sin for us. That's the understanding of the verse there. The, the, the Hebrew term for sin and sin offering is the same, hatat. The context determines the meaning. Uh, when hatat was used in reference to the animal substitute, it was understood as a sin offering. The Greek word hamatia in in this in First Corinthians in Second Corinthians five twenty one, where he became sin for us. Uh, I've read that above. He was made to be sin for us. But that word is understood in the same way as the Hebrew word. Hatat, either sin or sin offering. Now, the, the, the LXX, the Septuagint, uses Hamatia in Leviticus 4.24 and 5.12 for sin offering. F.F. Bruce, Bruce, in commenting on 2 Corinthians 5.21, said this. Paul had in mind the Hebrew idiom in which certain words for sin mean not only sin, but sin offering. In this case, we have a parallel here to Romans 8.3 where God is said to have sent his son as a sin offering. William McDonald says, we must beware of any idea that on the cross of Calvary, the Lord Jesus Christ became sinful in himself. Such an idea is false. Our sins were placed on him, but they were not in him. What happened is that God made him to be a sin offering on our behalf. This is literally what Isaiah 53.10 prophesies about Jesus, um, about that, that great chapter of, about the Messiah and what he would do. Isaiah 53.10 says this, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, he had put him to grief, when thou shalt make his soul, speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, in offering for sin. He would make his soul an offering for sin. Romans 3.25 and 1 Corinthians 5.7 speak of Christ as an offering, not as sin. Probably this verse also contains the, Christ, the thought that Christ took the consequences of our sin upon himself as well, Galatians 3.13. So we shouldn't think and believe that Christ became sin. He was, the, he was without spot. He was without blemish. He became our sin offering. He took the judgment of God upon himself in our place, just as that innocent animal did back in uh, the priesthood uh, times and the temple times. First, Second Corinthians 5.21 should read, He hath made him to be a sin offering 
for us who knew no sin. He was the perfect Lamb of God. He knew no sin. He could then become the offering that God required because he was the perfect Lamb of God. He didn't become sin. He was God's sin offering. And he became a little lower or made a little lower than the angels to actually ultimately become our substitute, our sin offering to die for our sins. That's mind-boggling. You, you, you think about, you know, the God who created heaven and earth. What is it that he would, would have this visit man and, and be mindful of man? Well, he was so interested in, our, in, our, in mankind that he planned and did send his son, very God himself, to take on flesh, to take the penalty, the wrath of God upon himself for you, for me, for the world. That is amazing. That the God who created all heaven and earth, he didn't do it for the angels. The angels are stuck. The lost angels, is, they're, they're more powerful than us, um, but they are, they don't, they, they'll never know the love of God. That is mind-blowing. So meditate on, on Psalm 8. So he didn't become sin offering, sin. He became a sin offering for us. So go to the, go to the next page. Turn it over. To verse 8. Then we are told this. And, and, and actually the end of verse 7. He was made a little lower than the angels. He would die, and, and as the result of his death and his resurrection and ascension, God crowned him with glory and honor. The end of verse 7. Because he went through that death, because he rose again, because he ascended, the Father has crowned him with all the glory, all the honor, and then did set him over the works of God's hands. He is the ruler. He is the judge. When we get to the great white throne judgment, it's not the Father that judges, it's the Son. John chapter 5 says the Father has given all judgment over to the Son. Because of what he has done, he is going to be the ruler, he's going to be the judge, he sits on that throne, um, and all those people who mocked Jesus and, 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 and ridiculed Jesus and, and doubted Jesus and denied Jesus, they're going to have to stand there at the great white throne judgment, and he's going to be there in all of his glory and power and beauty, and they are going to be, I don't know if they have pants on, but they're going to be, or boots, they're going to be trembling in their boots uh, because they're going to have to answer to him. Now, they can mock him here, but they're not going to mock him there as they are sent to the lake of fire. And then in verse 8, thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. See, when, when God created man, and, and this is down at the bottom, but I'm going to bring it up at the top too. When God created man initially, what did he tell man to do? Have dominion. Over everything. Right? How did we do? That didn't do very well. We lost it almost immediately. Yeah. 
Lucifer came along, Satan, and Adam and Eve caved so quickly. It was, now, you're no better. If you would have been there, you know, maybe, you know. They, and they lost that dominion. And that dominion then became whose? Satan's. He's the god of this world. And man lost that dominion. So what, G, what, what, God, the, what the plan of God was that we, ha, I, we have to send, you know, the Godhead, we have to send the Son to take on flesh to be made lower than the angels that ultimately we can ultimately restore back to man dominion <coughs> that man lost in the garden. And the only way that can be done is that Jesus, the Son, who is Jesus, had to be made a little lower than the angels, to, even though he's better than the angels, temporarily taking on flesh, going to the cross, dying, suffering, the, to nine. We'll get into that next week. For our sins, that ultimately, as verse 8 says, thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, Jesus' feet, because he is the, not just God, but the God Man, because it's man that God had given dominion to, too. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. Everything is under the domain of Jesus. He is Lord. He is sovereign. And, and again, in John chapter 5, I, I think it's verses 19 and 21, if I remember correctly. Uh, I think it's chapter 5. We'll find that really quick. Um, uh, hopefully. Um, Twenty-two. For the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. There's another verse in there, too, that says the same thing. Yeah. All judgment unto the Son. He is, everything is subjection in the Son. Why? Because he, 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 he was made a little lower than the angels to die, to redeem mankind back to him, that ultimately that dominion, that man lost in the garden because of their sinfulness, ultimately could be returned to mankind we didn't have the ability within ourselves to get that back. So God sent his son, low, made lower than the angels, to die and pay our penalty and resurrect. And ultimately then, because he did that, he would be crowned with honor and glory. He would be exalted. And everything would be put under his feet. Now, the end of verse 8. And then we'll look at what's under there. But now we see not yet all things put under him. See, Satan is still alive and well. He is still the God of this world. Not everything yet is under his rule. Is that day coming, though? It certainly is. Mark it down, underlined it, put it in bold. One day, everything will be under his rule totally, completely. Well, but in, I believe in his sovereignty, he has allowed Satan to be the god of this world. That's why in Luke chapter 5, I think, 
6 through 8 or something. In the temptation in the wilderness, is it 5 or chapter 4? I forget, you know, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, I should look it up. When Satan tempted Jesus, and he, he offered him all the power and all the glory of all the kingdoms of this world, Jesus never said, you don't have any authority to offer those to me. Well, he did have the authority. Now, God gave him that authority, but right now, he has the authority. He is the ruler of the kingdoms of this world. And that's why in the last trumpet judgment, the seventh trumpet judgment, when it sounded, now all the kingdoms of this world have become whom? Jesus's, the, Lord, the Lord's, Jesus's. But right now, it belongs to Satan. And God allows him to do what he wants to do with it, basically. Now, ultimately, God's sovereign plan will work out, but, but it is, it's not a, uh, I don't think it's a computer program type of thing, which I think is the, um, what's the word I'm looking for, is the, uh, the awesomeness, the uh, mind-bogglingness, I'm not sure if that's a word, of, 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 the, of the sovereignty of God. But he lets Satan have his way, and yet God still works everything out for his purpose and his glory. I mean, anybody can program a computer and it can spit out what you program it. You know, and, and uh, but that's where I think when you have the sovereignty of God, as I understand it, many understand it, that God still is sovereign, but has given that authority and that rule to Satan to do what he wants, and yet he still works out his plan, even though Satan is doing everything to thwart his plan. That's amazing. I, I can't understand it. I don't understand it. But that speaks to the amazingness of God. And so, and it writes it down on top of it, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so. Yeah. Well, and God has made, allowed him to become, when, when man lost that dominion, Satan became the god of this world. He, he's been the god of this world. And again, that's why he, Satan could offer to Jesus all the power and the glory of the kingdom. And Jesus didn't say, you have no authority to offer that, they're mine. Now, Jesus rejected, man, you know, and thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and so on. And that's because at that point and today, you know, through the years, centuries, Satan does have that power and that authority over all the kingdoms of this world. Ultimately, they're going back to Jesus, again, the seventh trumpet judgment. When it's blown, it announces, now all the kingdoms of this world have become our Lord's, Jesus Christ. Well, if they've now become, who are they belonging to previously? Satan. So, yeah, so God allowed him, God's in control, and he gave him, Satan, that authority temporarily, but Jesus, Jesus is going to get it back. And by the way, that's what history is all about. That's what I'm going to write the article on for the next magazine. Our, our theme in the next magazine is history is his story. And if you don't understand, the world will never understand what's happening in the world because they don't understand God's plan. And it goes from the very beginning in the fall and man losing dominion and losing that dominion, and God setting in place, and Jesus had to be made a little bit lower of the angels to die, that ultimately as a man he died, God didn't die, uh, that he could ultimately reclaim that dominion that man lost, and he would be, everything would be in subjection now to whom? To Jesus. 
because he was made a little lower than the angels. And then you've got all of that. We don't see it right now. In the future, it will come to pass in all of its fruition and all of its totality. But the very clear teaching of the Word of God, Psalm 2, Revelation 12, Revelation 19, Jeremiah 23, Isaiah 2. All the verses are here. 1 Corinthians 15. Um, you know, look at 1 Corinthians 15. We won't take it from the very top. Um, but let's say the whole thing. For as in Adam all die, even so Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first truths, after they that are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end, when he shall have del delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he, when he Jesus, shall put down all rule, all authority, and all power, for he must reign till he put all enemies under his foot. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he put all things under his feet. For when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. When all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Jesus is going to rule. Everything is put under him. He is the King of kings and the, uh, the Lord of lords. Now, I mentioned Psalm 8 was not understood as messianic. But the next point, when man was created, which I was talking about, he was told to have dominion over everything, Genesis 1.28. With man's sin, dominion was lost. The only one who can return dominion to mankind is the Son. That's the argument all the way up to this point. As the Son, who became a little lower than the angels, in order that he would be crowned with glory and honor, rule over all, and then the next phrase, which I don't want to talk you know, he had to die. It's not just becoming flesh. The only way he could, only way he could uh, get honor and glory um, and, and return the dominion to mankind is to die for the sins of the world and, and to reestablish what Adam and Eve lost in the garden. And there's three basic things that they lost. They lost theocracy, God ruling over them, they lost dominion over this world, and they lost this pristine, perfect environment called the Garden of Eden. No weeds, no sickness, you know, all of this. Well, Jesus is going to restore all of that, and everything will be in submission to him. But here's the good news, because who was the dominion given to initially? All mankind. Now, when Jesus became man, he was crowned with honor and glory, and everything was put into submission under him. But you know what? All who accept him one day will reign with him. And we, in a sense, will be um, co-regents. We'll be under him. He is king of kings, lord of lords. But because of Jesus, believers are heirs. Now, if you are heirs, you get everything that Everything. You, you inherit everything. Wow. So we are heirs. We will have dominion under Jesus. Romans 8, 16, 18. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's a whole other discussion. And if children, heirs. Heirs of God. Joint heirs of with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Wow. 
Jesus owns everything. Everything is put under him. But if we are children of God, we are joint heirs with Christ. And we have, in that sense, co-regency. We have dominion over everything under him that we lost right in the beginning from what Adam did. And that is all because Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. He's much better than the angels because he's God. But he had to become man, take on flesh, ultimately die and be buried and rise again and ascend so that he could be crowned with honor and glory and that dominion could be returned to man, the man Christ Jesus who will sit on the throne and rule and all who put their trust in him, we are co-regents, we are co-heirs. We are joint heirs with Christ. What amazing, wow. You should, you, you should run all the way home just shouting out the, you know. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Everybody, I'm a joint heir with Christ. Amen. Buzz, you do that. Jennifer will drive the car and you'll get there. Um, amen. Yes. I guess. Okay. <laughs> I know he just offered you $20 for that, but that's much appreciated. Yeah, Dan did a good job. He, he, he did, the, and I know Mom's here too, so, you know, don't build him up too much. Oh, yeah, I know you, Bob. You know, but he did a very good job on the magazine his first, though. So, anyway, yes, Yvonne, you want to say something? Yeah. No, we'll be at the Great White Throne. Well, but we will not be judged. We'll be, the whole universe is going to be destroyed. There's only going to be the Great White Throne. Everybody will be there. Every all the angels, I think, well, probably the angels will be there. Um, it doesn't really say about the angels. All of mankind will be there. We will be there. We will not be judged. We'll be kind of spectators, as it were. But we will be there. It's the lost who are judged at the Great White Throne. Well, where else are we going to be? Absent from the body is to be present from, with the Lord. Where's the Lord? He's at the great white throne, so where are we going to be? Uh, and then after the great white throne, the new heavens and the earth are created, and then we populate that. So. But doesn't it say somewhere that we will judge them? Well, it says in 1 Corinthians that we can judge angels now, and we can judge because we can judge angels. It doesn't mean we're going to judge them in a judicial manner, but we, we are, we, man, Jesus was made lower as man that he would be made greater. In the, in the beginning scheme of things, man was better than angels because we were going to have dominion over everything. Angels are just servants. So, man, we, we you know, we, we're, we're not servants, we're children in the household. And that's what's going to get into shortly about Moses uh, and and Jesus is better than Moses because Jesus, you know, Moses is just a child in the household, Jesus is over the household. But we'll get into that later. So, But just, you know, these verses are amazing. What truth it communicates to us in 5 through 8 um, on how awesome God is and that he would, you know, we're a, we're a speck of dust in the expanse of the universe. 
but that God would be mindful of us and visit us. That is just mind-blowing. You know, we are not worthy. Um, so, so, no, it's just, it's just mind-blowing. So, let's, let's close with a word of prayer. There are different desserts. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.